Amen. Go ahead and take your seat, church. It's good to, uh, good to be with you this morning, whether you're uh, here in the room or live at home on the uh, live stream. We're grateful uh, to have the church gathered in this way. And uh, whether you're at home or right here right now, take your Bibles out, uh, whether those be on your iPhone or your iPad or um, you have the uh, old analog version in front of you with paper and cover and such. Um, great to be able to start a brand new series. And um, if, any, if any pastor ever um, approaches the book of Romans and says, oh, that's easy, they're lying. Um, so we're embarking on uh, a new series today in the book of Romans, which really plums the depths of our belief about salvation, about Jesus Christ, about the gospel. And, and I'm excited to get at it, but I'm excited with some fear and trepidation because it's Romans. And so um, let's get at, at it. And I want us to think, first of all, about the word gospel itself. And we've titled the series, The Power of the Gospel. And I <clears throat> want you to think about that word. I want you to think about the word gospel. And I wonder what comes to mind when I say that word. For some of you, it might be a genre of music, you know, like I really like listening to gospel. Um, or for some of you, you're going to go, well, that word means good news. And, and so that little phrase comes to mind, and you'd be right about that, of course. Some of you, when I say gospel, think about the first four books of the New Testament, and you would be correct in assigning that word to those books. Uh, some of you might be thinking about the word gospel in terms of that initial act of believing, as if to say, when I became a Christian, I believed the gospel, and now I'm on to the rest of it. I'm seeking to learn the rest of it. And so with that in mind, all these different ways that we think about the word gospel, I wonder how many of us realize that for the Christian, the gospel is central to everything, always. For the Christian, the gospel is central to everything, always, and as such, it's really a multifaceted, multifaceted. Uh, that is to say, it has many faces or many different ways that we can look at uh, the gospel. This is not a real diamond, in case anybody was wondering about that. <laughs> I wish that it were, but it is not. But a cut diamond, we talk about the facets of a cut diamond. A cut diamond has various uh, facets or faces or angles or ways of looking at it. And, um, you know, the newly engaged woman, she looks at her ring, she stares at it for long periods of time, and she will turn the diamond this way and that way in the light so that the diamond will reflect the various facets that light will shine through, that she'll see different colors and different patterns as she turns the diamond this way and that way. And the same is true for the gospel. Its power in our lives is multifaceted. Its power throughout our lives, not just in the initial stages, is multifaceted, reflecting constantly the light of Jesus Christ in varied ways. And in this series, we're going to look at 16 facets of the gospel through Romans 1 to 8 and the powerful way that it transforms the Christian day to day. 
And I should say, because it's the starting of the series, I should say something about the series itself. We're going to look at uh, 16 messages in the first eight chapters of Romans, this first section. Uh, But you need to understand that in terms of how we might preach the book of Romans, this is really, with just 16 messages in eight chapters, this is really just a survey of these eight chapters. In fact, I did kind of a very quick um, look at these eight chapters, and I thought about it. If we were doing this book the way that we did Luke, and we spent, you know, uh, six years looking at the gospel of Luke, and if we thought about it in terms of the way we're doing the book of Acts right now, and we're taking a slow crawl through the book of Acts, it's going to take us several years to get through that. If we were to do that with these eight chapters, at the very least, it would be 32 messages, but probably more. And so this is, just so I just don't want anybody to be disappointed here. Man, he skipped over so much. Okay, I just don't want you to be, I just want to set the expectations right. This is a quick cruise, 16 messages, a very quick survey through these eight chapters of Romans. And so we're going to look at these and we're going to look again at the powerful way it transforms us day by day, affecting every area of our lives. We're going to set the stage for that today to look at the power of the gospel, which is the title of the series. And the gospel is power is the title of today's message. And so let me turn our attention to Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 17 verses. You ready for that? All right, Romans 1, 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace in apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise, the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen? Amen. The Word of God. All right, here's the big question we're going to go after. And actually, we're going to break this down into three questions. We're going to uh, 
put in front of this text. Am I experiencing the power of the gospel is uh, the overall question, but am I experiencing the power of the gospel, gospel first as I carry out the mission of Christ? So it's important to establish, first of all, because we're talking about Paul writing, we're going to talk about his call and his mission. It's important, first of all, to say that there is no, and I hope you understand this phrase, there is no clergy-laity split in the church of Jesus Christ. In other words, even though some of us get a paycheck for the sake of the gospel, to preach the gospel, and many, many in the church do not get a paycheck to do that, there really is no such split. Some of us do this as a matter of employment, that we're part of the church staff, but most are members. But all, all, listen, are engaged and called to be part of the mission of Jesus Christ. We are all all called in one way or another to be part of what Jesus Christ is doing in this world. Paul himself cites three things about his special role in the mission. You see all of them here. First of all, he says, I'm a servant of Christ, first one. If you have the New American Standard, it actually uses the word bondservant there. And if you look at the original language word, it's doulos. And doulos is the word for slave, not really servant, but slave. A lot of the English translations kind of put a softer spin on that because we don't really like the word slave today. But Paul's saying, I'm a slave, and not just any slave, not like a slave that was captured among another people and forced into servitude. A, a doulos is someone who um, voluntarily, willingly places themselves under the servitude of a benevolent master. They literally say, I want to live in your household. I want to be your servant. I want to be here. And that's what Paul's saying he is. He's a slave of Christ, a bondservant of Christ. Secondly, he says, I'm called to be an apostle. So Paul had this very special encounter on the Damascus Road that not only was his conversion, but also his call to be an apostle. Jesus Christ gave him this office. No one has that call today. There are no apostles as such today, but Paul had that on himself. And thirdly, he says, not only a slave, not only an apostle, but set apart for the gospel. In other words, everything about Paul's life and ministry was about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's threefold kind of authentication of who he is, that also applies perfectly to you and I. We look at it, it applies similarly in the sense that we can look at the pattern of that and see that, yeah, this is true of me too. Are we not also slaves of Christ? Amen? Are we slaves of Christ? We are. We serve Him. We've, we've, we've given our life to this benevolent Master and set our lives apart for Him. And so we're slaves. We're called to a specific ministry according to our gifts and passions. If you fast forward in this letter to chapter 12, where Paul talks about some of the spiritual gifts, you jump over to his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, talks about spiritual gifts. When he writes to the Ephesians in in chapter 4, he writes to them about their spiritual gifts. And we all are given, every believer is given some ability empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve the church and to be part of the mission. For Paul, it was apostle. For us, it might, it's going to be different than that. We're going to have different gifts, but we're no less engaged and called to serve in specific ministries according to our gifts and passions. And then we too, of course, are set apart for the gospel. In other words, it doesn't matter if you work at Honda or RVH. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher or a farmer or whatever it is you do. Your life 
is not about those things. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. It doesn't matter if you have kids or don't have kids. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. Your life is about one thing. It's not, your identity is not in those other things. Your life is about the gospel. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing, your life is about the gospel. It's central to everything that we are and all that we do as those who are, Paul says it in verse 6, you're called, he says, you're called to belong to Jesus. Verse 7, he says that you are called to be saints. And, and that's, that's not passive. That's not just like, I got the gospel. I've been saved. Now I get to sit as a nice little church member and just take it all in. The obligation is that if I'm identified with Christ, if I belong to Him, if, 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 I'm, if I'm called to be one of His saints, then the obligation and implication is that I'm also on the mission. And if that's true, and it is, then we ought to be leaning in to hear every word of what the book of Romans says to us in this series. Asking the question week by week, God, what do you have for me this week? How's this going to change my life this week so my life is more centered on the gospel? Every bit of it applies. Romans being the most complete and detailed description of the gospel written, and Paul, in fact, takes it from here, and he goes on to describe in verse 2. I mean, he barely gets into what are the, 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 the normal format for writing a letter. He barely gets into it, and then he jumps over in verse 2 to actually start describing the gospel. Can't help himself. Which he promised, notice verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. This is all fulfilling ancient prophecies. It all lines up with the Old Testament. And then he goes on to, in, in verses 3 and 4, what you have in those two verses, if you just want to kind of box them out in your Bible or highlight them in some way, this is like a little creed or a little uh, excerpt from a song. There's two lines here that are in meter. They're paralleling to each other. And they're obviously some kind of quote that he's using. And he says, first of all, verse 3, Speaking about Jesus, it's all about His humanity concerning His Son who is descended from David according to the flesh. He's fully human. Okay, this is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully human. Verse 3, pointing to His humanity. Verse 4, pointing to His divinity. And He was declared to be the Son of God. And declared to be the Son of God only in the sense that He had fulfilled His messianic purpose when He came to earth. When He was incarnate, He became flesh, He lived among us, He gave His life on the cross, He was resurrected from the dead, He fulfilled all the messianic prophecies, He fulfilled the mission. And so in that sense, He was declared to be the Son of God because we know for sure that Jesus was the Son of God before all those events took place. Amen? That He was the Son of God before the foundation of the world. That Jesus Christ always has been, is, and always will be the Son of God. So he, he's only declared to be so in the sense that he fulfilled the messianic mission. So he's declared to be the Son of God. Verse 4 continues, in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it's right to say that our lives are centered in the gospel, and the gospel is centered in Christ. Our lives are centered in the gospel, and the gospel is centered in Christ, who He is and what He did, specifically His death, His burial, His resurrection, His resurrection mentioned right here, that we're nothing, we're nothing without the resurrection. 
It's all, this is all just a big waste of time and all the gathering online and all the effort that went into today and all the gathering and you might as well just have stayed home and slept in and enjoyed a Sunday without the resurrection. It's all focused on who he is and what he did. Our, our lives are centered in the gospel and the gospel is centered in Christ. And Paul goes on then, verse 5. Are you keeping up? Everybody still with me? Yeah. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, notice, to bring about the obedience of faith. We're going to come back to that phrase. For the sake of his name among all the nations. A little, all the nations, a little allusion there to Matthew 28, 19 in the Great Commission. And Jesus said, you're going to make disciples of all nations in Acts 1, 8. He told them with this final charge before he ascended, he said, you're going to go to the end of the earth with this gospel. And again, this applies to us today, because look at what Paul says to his readers here. Ordinary believers in Rome, that's who he's talking to, ordinary believers in Rome. How many ordinary believers here today? Raise your hand if you're an ordinary believer. A few people didn't raise their hand. They think they're special. You are not special. You are an ordinary believer Okay, we're just ordinary people. And Paul's writing to ordinary believers in Rome. And he says to these ordinary believers, he's sharing this lofty information, theology about the gospel, about Jesus Christ. He says, including you, all of this includes you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is your mission too. And by by virtue of what the Scriptures are intending to do in our own lives and the power of the Holy Spirit through the inspired Word, when Paul writes, including you, Roman believers, we read that you as you and me. I'm reading this as I've got to live this way. This is my life he's talking about. We're called to belong. We're called to bring about, there's that phrase, the obedience of faith, to preach, to teach, to disciple to serve, to love one another and love this world, all for the sake of people who don't know Jesus coming to faith in him. Every Christian invested in the mission. So that's the question. Am I experiencing the power of the gospel? You ask this for yourself. Am I experiencing the power of the gospel as I carry out the mission? Is the power of the gospel being evidenced in my prayers? Is the power of the gospel being evidenced in my giving? Is the power of the gospel being evidenced in my serving? Is the power of the gospel being evidenced in my fellowship with other believers, in my words, in my conduct, in my walk, in my worship? Is the power of the gospel evident? As I carry out the mission. All right, that's question one. Who's ready for question two? Yeah? You're laughing. Does that mean you want it or you don't want it? Oh, bring it on. There we go. Thanks, Sarah. Am I experiencing the power of the gospel? Question two, as I live day by day by faith in Christ. Paul, Paul's following the standard letter writing format. He introduced himself, okay? But then he kind of like deviated over a little bit to talk about the gospel for a bit because he loves that. And, and then he gets back to it uh, with a greeting to them verse seven, in verse 7. 
then thanksgiving for his readers. This is all very common, not just in Christian letter writing, but if you were to look at ancient letters that were written around the same time in that part of the world, they all follow the same format. Thanksgiving for his readers, verse 7, verse 8, thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. That's in verse 8. Then he tells them why, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I'm, I'm just not like thankful for you in this generic sense. Like I'm thankful for you in a really specific way. Like there's things I heard about you. I'm so excited about those things. I'm so grateful to God for those things in your life. Your faith, everyone's talking about your faith. And I get that they, it's, they were in Rome. It's the center of the empire. There's a lot of traveling going back and forth from Rome to all the different parts of the ancient world. So I get that part of it. But still, the church must have been something that that word was spreading. Then he gives an assurance of his prayers for them. Again, not, it's not just Christian literature or letters that had this. Even um, pagan letters, any, any letters that were written would have this sense of well-being for people and this, this sense of invocation to the gods for them. Verse 9, for God is my witness, for whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, verse 10, always in my prayers. So the prayer is tailored to them. He's letting them know that he desires in his praying about something really specific. I'm, I'm praying that I actually can come and visit you. Asking that somehow by God's will, he writes, that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Then he catches himself and he goes, you know, this can't just be about what I'm going to bring to them because I'm so excited about seeing them. I know they're going to give something back to me. So he says that in verse 12, you know, he talks about mutually encouraged by each other's faith. You have something for me too. I mean, this is the apostle Paul writing to this Roman church. He doesn't know anybody at this church, really, and, and, and hadn't started it himself. And he's writing over to them. And, you know, I'm sure they're thinking, wow, the Apostle Paul wants to come here. And he's thinking, man, I can't wait to get there to see these people. Verse 13, I've often intended to come to you, but, you know, he says, I was prevented from doing so in order that I may reap some harvest among you. I want to lead more people to Jesus as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, Basically, he says, I'll preach to anyone anywhere. I'm ready to go anywhere and everywhere and talk to anyone about the gospel. He says, verse 14, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians. I'll preach to anyone, both to the wise and the foolish. I'll preach to smart people and stupid people. It doesn't matter to me. Are people offended that I use the word stupid right now? Any problem with that? Any parents right now a little upset that I use the word stupid? Any kids right now feel like I'm vindicated for using the word stupid at home? It's okay, kids. I'm just going to give you a little ammo right here. The word stupid is used often in the English Standard Version of the Bible in the book of Proverbs. So you can tell your parents it's a Bible word. You. Parents, you're welcome. <laughs> parents, you're welcome. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, verse 15. So I'm eager, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now question, as I read this, I just go, why would Paul want to preach the gospel to a church that was already established? Well, because it's not just about evangelism. The gospel, this is the answer, the gospel relates not just to that initial act of conversion, as we've already discussed, but to the entirety of the Christian life. 
In fact, I love the way that Thomas Schreiner says this. This is one of the resources I'm using throughout this series. His commentary, he writes this, the obedience of faith, which as Paul shows is part and parcel of the gospel, cannot be limited to the initial decision to join the Christian community. The gospel includes every aspect of Christian existence, for Philippians 1.27 calls on believers to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's intention in Rome was not merely to win converts, but to strengthen and edify those who are already believers in Rome. Again, it's about the entirety of our Christian life. This is about living day by day by faith in Christ. And really to back it up a little bit and understand Paul's whole purpose in writing, a little historical background here, don't glaze over, it's going to be really short, the history part. But there's no certainty as to who actually planted this church. I mean, we know, obviously, the church already exists when Paul's writing the letter, and and he's admitting that he's never been there, so he didn't start the church. The Apostle Paul didn't start it, even though he started all kinds of churches in the Mediterranean world. And with all due respect and with apologies to the Vatican, tongue-in-cheek apologies, it wasn't Peter who established the church. So we don't really know who established it. We don't know how this church in in this super important city, how this even got started. But no matter how it got started, there was a church in Rome, and Paul's reason for connecting with this church is threefold. He says, I want to go there to strengthen you. I want to lead more people to Jesus. And a third thing, which we don't learn until we get to chapter 15, which we're not going to do in this series, but you can jot down this reference, Romans 15, 19 through 24, that Paul's intention is to use Rome as a base to reach out into Spain. He wants them, in fact, to be partners on his Spanish mission. And all of this so that they are, verse 12, mutually encouraged by each other's faith, built up by how they are all living for Christ day by day. Now, here's the thing. As I read Paul I understand Paul already had fellowship with this church, though he had never been there and never met them. He already had fellowship with them. He already felt the liberty that he could write this letter to them. They, their reputation had already spread around so that people felt connected to what the Roman church was doing. There was already fellowship, even though they weren't in proximity with one another. There was a connectedness that was there. And yet Paul also expresses this great desire, I've often longed, I'm so eager, I want to be with you, that he wanted even closer fellowship with that church. Paul wanted to be with them because he knew that the fellowship they had currently was great, but it could be so much better if only they could be together. And so to take full advantage of this day-by-day walk of faith, we have to be in close fellowship with one another. And even as I say that, I realize that that one point, close fellowship with one another, has just become so much harder during this pandemic. And tell me if this isn't true, so much more precious to us. Because it's, because it's been taken away. Because now, you know, for a season, everything had to be on video. We couldn't even get together. Because even now, we have to sit certain number of seats apart. We have to wear masks. We can't linger in the lobby. We can't serve you a coffee. 
You can't hang around just to fellowship, just to connect, just to be in relationship. We've taken away the handshake and the hug. And so close fellowship all of a sudden has been taken from us and and is more precious to us because we're understanding we can't do without one another. That the Christian life, living day by day faith in faith, I need you and you need me. We need the mutual encouragement that we give to one another. We can't do without each other. And the Christian life cannot be lived in isolation. And so whatever it takes, priority must be placed on getting together with God's people. That's what we see in in Paul's heart here. And I'm, I'm so concerned about drift. I'm, I'm so concerned at this time that some of us would even become lazy at our Christian life and, on, and about gathering together and pressing in for this kind of fellowship. You know, last week I cited uh, Tom Rainer, an American thinker, and he writes on these, these matters. And I made the point last week that he said that during this pandemic, churches are just going to lose 20% of the people that were attending pre-pandemic. 20% just off the top. One in five people who were part of the church prior are not going to be here afterwards. And I, I'm not content with that, are you? I'm not content that we're just going to lose 20% of the people. I'm going to like fight and scrape for every one of them. To be part of this, to not allow anyone to drift off or to become lazy about their Christian life. I don't want to lose a single person, do you? I don't think we have to. I think we can talk about fellowship and how we get together and putting a priority on this. And so, if at all possible, do what you all have done. Get here in person and have the best kind of fellowship we can have under the current circumstances, but get here in person. Now, there are some good reasons why some of you have stayed home today and are part of the live stream, and there are, there are good reasons for that, and we're not despising any of that. We're grateful for the ability to even do this and to have these two campuses in person and online. But don't become lazy about this. Don't be like, oh, I'll watch it later, and then you don't. Or you watch part of it, or you're just only listening half. You have it on, so you give yourself the checkbox. I watched the live stream, but you were doing six other things while it was on. Focus on it. You need this. We all need this. I I realize that we have Zoom fatigue, but if that's the best way to get together with God's people, then get together on Zoom. Don't say, look, oh, I just, I'm so tired of it. I'm mentally exhausted. I'm emotionally, I can't handle it. Just get on the Zoom call with other believers and pray for one another. Encourage one another. We're going to do the best we can during this time. Do it in a physically distanced way. Put your, I'm going to use the word again. I'm going to use the Bible word again. Put your stupid mask on and get together with God's people. Okay? It's a Bible word. I keep telling you that. Get it done. Cold weather is coming. Oh, you know, it's been so good, the summer and the fall's been pretty good, and we've been able to be outside and connect with people, but you know, the winter's coming. We're Canadians! We the North! If you're too cold, buy a better coat. 
buy some boots, get some gloves, put a toque on your head, and get together with God's people. Fill a thermal cup with hot coffee or hot chocolate and get a meeting down at the waterfront. Just get together with God's people. That's what it takes to mutually encourage one another's faith. All right. Third question. Am I experiencing the power of the gospel as I stand without shame for Christ? You know, you know that expression, saving the best for last? You know that? Saving the best for last. That's what this third question is. That's what these two verses are. It's if we've saved the best for last. We come to these two most critical verses, not just in this message, not just in this 17-verse package, but listen, the two most important verses in the entire letter of Romans. They're the key to the understanding interpretation of what Paul writes here. Listen again, verse 16. And these should be, by the way, if you have an analog Bible or a real, you know, electronic Bible, whatever Bible you have, it should be highlighted, underlined, marked, boxed, whatever you need to do here. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God, really critical, important phrase, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk here, which we studied some months ago, the righteous shall live by faith. So in this transition, he goes from verse 15 to verse 16. It's as if he's accomplished now all the formalities of letter writing. He's he's talked about his credentials, who he is, his thanksgiving, his prayer, his purpose, all of that. And then in verse 16, 17, he drops a truth bomb on them. He says, I've talked about the gospel I preach. Now here's what I really believe about it and how it's changing my life. And he starts by saying, I'm not embarrassed by Jesus. Now, maybe that was important for him to say because he's writing to the Romans, who again are in the most important city in the entire world at the time. A sophisticated city, a smart city, a powerful city. And maybe there was some thought that when Paul went to Rome, that maybe he might pull it back a little. Just let's, let's just dial it back. You're in Rome now, Paul. And Paul wanted them to know he wasn't going to dial it back at all, that he wasn't ashamed. He's not embarrassed by Jesus. And Paul, not being ashamed, builds right off of Jesus' words, which no doubt he knew from Mark chapter 8. Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be a believer. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says this prior to to him going to the cross. So in their mind, as he says this, they're thinking cross, this, this devastatingly cruel instrument of execution. That's what they have in their mind is you got to take up your cross and follow me. And everything about crucifixion, if we're thinking about shame here, everything about crucifixion was designed to shame the one being executed and and to so shame that person that not only the death but the shaming acts as a deterrent to anybody else who's watching you're never going to want to do what that guy did because if you do you're going to be completely shamed and by the way you're also going to die 
Think about it in terms of Jesus. Jesus endured being uh, spat upon, being struck. He was slapped and punched and beaten. He was stripped completely naked. Every movie we ever see about Jesus, he's not completely naked, but he would have been. He was ridiculed. He was scourged, compelled to carry the cross beam up to the place of crucifixion. Even even when he was on the cross and and obviously going to die, people just kept mocking him, shaming him. You said you were the son of God. Why don't you come down from the cross? Like even in that moment, they couldn't find any compassion or any mercy for him. They just kept mocking him. They wanted to heap even more shame on him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He goes on, forever, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever would, loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? If you're about yourself, if you're about your life, if you're about your plans, if you're about the accumulation of your wealth, if you're about your ways and your future and your comfort, please understand that eventually you will lose all of it. It will all be forfeit. All of it. Everything that you might consider important right now will amount to a zero, Jesus tells us. And then Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, this is devastating. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I mean, is there any other way to say this but that if you deny Jesus, he denies you? If you deny Jesus, he denies you. If you're ashamed of Jesus, if you're ashamed of what he says, my words, if you're ashamed of Jesus and his gospel, he'll be ashamed of you. I feel like I just want to pause and think about that for a second. I mean, this is serious business when Jesus starts talking about being ashamed of us. I mean, we should should feel like a thick tension in the air right now about this because this isn't a feel-good message. Not not right now it isn't. Shrink back from your faith, deny you know Him, betray Him with your decisions, fail to serve Him in His mission. You may find yourself on the wrong side of all of this because in all those ways and countless others, we communicate that we are ashamed of him. And Paul determined, verse 16, you see it, I, Paul determined, you see it, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God. And Paul, Paul, listen, Paul faced all the threats People were constantly shaming him and putting the pressure on him as a result of his preaching of the gospel. Always facing a real threat of arrest and beatings and even death for the mission. And he's saying, I've been so radically changed by the gospel. 
and am being changed by the gospel, that even the threat of suffering cannot keep me from telling everybody about Jesus and His good news. We don't have time to go into it right now, but Paul did suffer greatly for the gospel. And uh, you could jot down this reference, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 28, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 28, where he talks about all the beatings and all the shipwrecks and all the arrests and the imprisonments and everything else that he faced. See, when we're unashamed, as Paul was, there's resolve, there's confidence, there's a willingness to be identified with and even suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, are you unashamed of the gospel? You should be. This is the only way we get saved. It's the only way we find the forgiveness of our sins. It's the only place where there's power. Think about the power of the gospel. Think about the power of the gospel just in your individual life. Think about how the power of the gospel, I'm speaking to the believers in the room now, think about how the power of the gospel saved you. You have to be honest with yourself right now. And not, not think about any, you know, oh, I'm basically a good person. That's not going to be helpful. Be honest with yourself right now. Think about the depth of your own sin. Think about the rebellion in your heart. Think about the wandering and even evil thoughts. We, we don't use evil. We don't use evil for ourselves. We save that for other people. We give ourselves a pass. We talk about, well, it's just a little lie, a little sin, a little, a little sin. It's evil. If it's contrary to God's word, it's evil. There's only one or the other. There's not, it's black or white. There's no gray in this. Think about the people you've hurt. Think about the people you're hurting right now. Think about the lust and the greed and the gossip and the lying and the stealing. Think about all of it. Think about the 10,000 times in your lifetime that you've disappointed God and wandered off the path. But the power of the gospel saved you. Now, now take that, if you, you're done thinking about yourself for a second, whew, done thinking about myself. Now add that up and think about all the people in this room and all the people in the live stream and add that all up and go, the, powerful, the power of the gospel was enough to save all those people with all their sin because they're as bad as I am. Then think about all the people throughout all history and all the places for all the thousands of years that God has been saving people by faith, which is the only way he's ever saved anybody. And all the sin that's been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you get a, an appreciation, just a little appreciation for the power of the gospel. And then we think about religion and all the ways people try to make themselves feel better about life and the fact that a person need only believe, need only exercise faith to, to receive the great benefit of the salvation that Jesus Christ provides. That he provided for us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
You have to agree with God about these things. You have to know and understand about Christ to believe His gospel. As we turn our life over and surrender to Him, we bring both mental assent and an act of the will. I not only understand enough about the gospel to believe it, but I also surrender my life to Him so that I can receive the spiritual cleansing that comes by the righteousness of God. That is to say, that great phrase, that the character, the very character of God, His very holiness placed upon me so that the righteousness of God is mine. So then God looks at this like incredibly sinful person who's still struggling with sin. And we'll get to that in Romans 7, still struggling with the whole thing. And God looks at us and says, you're righteous. You're righteous. You're righteous. And you're righteous not because of anything you've done, but you're righteous, you're righteous because the righteousness of God has been placed on you by Jesus Christ. It's awesome what God has done for us. And this comes without restriction. That anyone by faith can receive this. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's offered to any who would believe. That the gospel is universal. That it's to go to the whole world. That it's to go to the end of the earth. That it's for all people. And when we think of the application of the power of the gospel in our lives and how it changes us day by day, all the current angst, let's think about it, all the current angst over racial issues is the result of sin's corruption in this world. Where Christians who are professing that the gospel has changed them have failed in matters of race, let's call it what it is, it's evil, it's sin, and it needs to be repented of. The Roman church was obviously struggling with some racial issues as well because you had Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek who were not getting along, though they believed in the same Savior. So Paul's dealing with it head on as he makes a point to say there's no room for any divisions in the church, no racism. In fact, we're to be the model in this world of reconciliation, cooperation, and integration. We're to take our lead from the Creator who made all the ethnicities, all the differences, all the wonderful differences that we see in one another. He, in fact, will gather us all together on that last day. And if we want to see the fulfillment of Romans 1, 16 and 17, we go all the way to the end of the book, to Revelation 5, 9 and 10, where we see the fulfillment of the gospel. When the saints are gathered and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Listen, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's the end goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel applied. Amen? That picture and so much more is the effect of the power of the gospel. It's righteous living by faith in Jesus Christ. And why, why, why would we ever be ashamed of that? We should all say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Our God and Father, thank you um, again for your word that speaks to us, speaks into our lives, Father, as real and relevant today as when it was written. Thank you for your Holy Spirit moving and working in this place in the life of this church, God. We, Father, we want close fellowship with each other. We want to live by faith day by day. Father, we want to boldly proclaim this gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we know that it's the hope for all those who don't know you. And so God, help us with all of that. Help us to live out the gospel this week. God, I pray that all across this room and on the live stream right now, there would be a firm resolve to lean in and to hear every word that you have for us in this series. God, that you would be changing and transforming us more fully into the image of Jesus Christ through this time. Thank you, Father, for the power of the gospel that saved us. Continue to change us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.